This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. As I headed into the precinct, what at first I thought was litter all around was actually wrapping paper. Charred, torn, every sort of colour, flapping around in the breeze. Presents? A hundred presents. Scattered on the ground. Toys popped from wrapping like bees from a pod. Dolls and tanks and bright plastic goodies of whatever type took your fancy. Dappled on the snow like they'd fallen from the sky. Hey, mister! You dropped all your presents! <gasps> he was standing in a flurry of snow at the edge of the estate. Back to me, shoulders hunched. That a sled, is it? It looked ancient. An enormous, dirty sled that might have been made of driftwood. A mucky tarpaulin lashed over the top. Looked like it had been hit by something. Skidded across the quad into the precinct and come to rest up against the wall of an electric substation. Grim landing. No doubt. Get out of the way! An ice carpet. Of course I did. Stopped in a fire exit 20 paces away. What are you doing? He was wearing a hood. A massive coat. Raggedy. Black. Torn. Carrying a long rifle. You're listening to Audio Dramatics on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's bi-monthly show looking at audio and radio dramas. The festive opening that you've just heard was an extract from The Morpeth Carol by Timothy X. Atak, in which a rather more violent and grizzled version of Santa Claus than we're used to crashes in a northern town, and Santa is helped in delivering the presents that have survived the crash by a resourceful local boy. Timothy X. Atak is one of the guests in tonight's show, and I'll be talking to him as well about his radio plays The Stroma Sessions and Phonophone, and his Doctor Who audio dramas The Wreck of the World and Jonah. Later in the show, in a Q&A recorded at a conference about zombie fiction at the University of Brighton, Ewan Kirkland will be talking to writer Naomi Alderman about her immersive aural fitness app Zombies Run, a game played entirely using the headphones on your mobile phone, and as you're running or walking around a location, you get infrequent messages from radio stations and other travellers warning you about imminent zombie attacks and missions you have to go on to protect the people who are back at your base. However, to start off with, here's my interview with Timothy Atak, talking about his various plays, which like one's auditory encounters with the undead in Zombies Run, add an uncanny element to the landscape. So you've written three plays for radio, The Stroma Sessions, The Morpeth Carol and Phonophone, and a couple of plays for Big Finish. But your background is in theatre, and I believe some of the plays that you've put on have been in a darkened room, so that basically people are listening to a radio show live. So the interest in doing theatre and doing audio without pictures, were they things that you always wanted to do kind of side by side? Well, I think it's probably because I started my my career as a composer, really. Ah. 
um, and I, I began um, after studying uh, a course in drama, film, and television in Bristol. I um, I spent my first few years after graduating um, working on um, on comedy projects. Actually, <laughs> um, I did a lot of work with uh, um, Matt Lucas and David Williams and toured with them for a while. Mm. Um, and at the same time, was touring and making records with my own band. So everything's kind of come from a, um, a music perspective for me. So I, I, the, the focus on sound has always been there. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's been something that has driven the work that I've done with my own with my own theatre company. Um, and uh, an awful lot of our work has started out with um, with kind of a, a focus on storytelling through through sound and through. Um, a uh, lot of different sound techniques as well through uh, things like the use of field recordings that we then mm. chop up and warp and splice so that it turns into a kind of music or it's done through like kind of um, uh, news reports and the readings of diaries and stuff like that. So it's all, yeah, it's, it's all fed in from from that initial um, interest in music, I think. Mm. And even as a musician, when you're writing songs, do you see yourself as a storyteller in that medium as well? I think so, yeah. I was thinking about this the other day and thinking about the way that I write lyrics for, for the songs that um, that I play with my band or that I, or that I, or that I do solo, whatever. And there's always kind of a, a sense that the... Uh, that there's a, a somewhere there's a story contained within it. It can, it can be hiding in quite an oblique way sometimes, but I'm only ever really satisfied with a lyric when when that's the case. I think, yeah. Mm. I mean, and and equally, when you're making sound recordings, when you're, I guess, recording foley sound, um, the, yeah, the noises that an environment makes, do they then t- sometimes suggest the story that you might make with them? Yeah, they often do. I think there's a there's a phrase that um, my, my collaborator Tanuja Amarasuria and I use, which is we we sort of we're looking for a ghost music when mm. we make field recordings. We're looking for something that's hidden beneath the everyday sounds of a place, sometimes hidden within the sounds of a place. Mm. Um, and it's very very easy after a while when you're wandering around a city to start like sort of um, to start uh, discerning like sort of rhythms and. Uh, melodies in in ridiculous things like sort of um, the sound that a that an air conditioning unit might be making or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, thinking about how that is reflected in your projects, I mean, I guess mm. both um, Circadile, uh, which is kind of a mix of the sounds that are recorded in a local area and then performed yeah. on stage. And then yeah. um, a play like the Stroma Sessions both deal with that idea in different ways. Yeah, they do actually. Yeah, and it's something that it's not—it's not always intended when I start out on a project that, it's, that, that things cross over in that way. Um, but uh, circadial actually is the way that we pronounce Sorry. it. <laughs> but it's, it's fine. It's, it's a made-up word, you know. <laughs> it's, it's kind of—it's kind of a play on circadian, and mm. then it's—it's it's given a little bit of a Bristol twist at the end. And the first time we—the first time we made it was in Bristol, so we thought we'd give—we'd give a shout out to where it was, wow. where it originated. But um, uh, yeah, it's—it's um, it's something that. Uh, 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 it's, it's not, yeah, like I said, it's not necessarily intended, but um, it's it's hard sometimes for these things not to not to bleed into each other. Mm. And um, 
the funny thing is that circadial is kind of a um it's very often a very joyous like sort of uh semi improvised kind of um take on 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 a place that we've that we spent some time in normally a city or something like that and we've done it in places like like Athens and London and it normally i think brings out a a kind of a personality that we perceive in um in those places yeah. uh uh, very very much our own point of view and stroma sessions is interesting because it's a different kind of love letter to making music it's it was um stroma sessions the idea in that being that a, a sort of a, a modern music ensemble um a quartet who decide that they're going to head out to a scottish um island that once was inhabited but is now abandoned and they decide they're going to go out there and make an album they want to be inspired by the sort of like the desolate nature of the of the um the landscape out there mm. and they discover that in some way or another they are not alone <laughs> <laughs> and it turns into it turns into kind of a horror story about making mm. music um it's a it's a story about the difficulties you encounter when making music the it's it's kind of in some ways um uh, a fiction about uh, some very extreme fiction about the the kind of the, the times when I'm making music and it's not going well, <laughs> and I feel like um, and I feel like I'm you know bashing my head against a brick wall or whatever, mm. um, and and so there were some very very dark places the Stroma sessions went to in that in that sense yeah. Mm. We present these recordings in good faith and with all due respect for their provenance. No stars to speak of, no hand to hold. The Black Letter Quartet, a new music ensemble, had an idea to write and record an album on Stroma, an abandoned island off the north coast of Scotland. Listen to me, listen to me, please, if you get this, anybody. They sought inspiration in the ruined houses and unforgiving weather. They wanted to make music in a ghost town. Hilda, if we play it, I'm finished. One, two, three, four. The evidence suggests they found what they were looking for. Well, and as well as it kind of showcasing your interest in the sounds that a place uh, might evoke and may exist already it also reminded me of the stone tape i was wondering if that was one of your uh, influences. yeah yeah it is i mean i haven't seen the stone tape in ages <laughs> um uh but but there's yeah there's definitely something in that and there's definitely something in um it was as much influenced in in many ways by uh the writings of, of david toop his his incredible series of books about about well basically i suppose about listening about hearing and about the um relationship between music and place and stuff like that um and uh yeah so i was, I was reading lots of that when i was writing um stroma sessions mm. when you're doing a play like the stroma sessions where it's as much about the music as the characters does that yeah. make you feel uh, more vulnerable as a creator because not only are people listening to your dialogue you're listening to the music as well and music certainly in a play like that is very very important well it's interesting because quite very often quite early on i kind of make a a, a sort of like a set decision as to whether i'm going to 
um, create the music or not. Um, in Stroma sessions, it was it was interesting because uh, the producer Nicholas and I kind of went backwards and forwards on whether that would be a good idea. <laughs> we kept on, and we sort of so, and we kept on throwing like sort of different um, different composers back and forth as we were discussing it. And every now and then, I occasionally did a little bit of a demo towards mm. something that might that might be the sound of um, the, the the sort of the music that the band made. Um, but most most of the time, I, I kind of like. Um, I'm, I'm happy to make a, a call very, very early on as to um, as to whether I'll be doing the music or not, and that that often changes the way I'll write the script as well. If I think I'm going to be composing too, then I allow myself um, a, a little bit more leeway in terms of what, in terms of how the um, the the, the uh, composition might interact with with the dialogue, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you have to be a bit more like sort of um, you have to give it a bit more care if you're going to hand it over to someone else. You have to make sure that the uh, that the emotional beats are all there and you know all present and correct mm. um, in a way that will be clear for your collaborators. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, when I listened to the Stroma sessions, the version that I heard was the sort of feature length version that was on Radio yeah, Three. Yeah. So I hadn't realised that it was also serialised um, in oh, five yeah, parts. Oh, yeah. And it, yeah. Was, it was funny because when I listened to the full version or the, you know, the, the long version, after about yeah. 15 minutes, I was thinking, how can this continue? It feels like it's reached a point where you've kind of dealt with all of the cliches, for want of a better word, of kind of found, found, <laughs> found footage horror movies and kind of yeah, painted yeah. yourself into a corner thinking, well, how does this go on for another hour? But then you have yeah. one of the characters come back and basically tell a monologue for the next sort of 15 yeah. minutes. And that yeah. works really well in terms of the pace. And presumably that was a decision you had to make because you knew it was going to be serialised. There was the the, the uh, original concept, um, the sort of like the, the the very sort of like the basic outline concept for Stroma came from the producer Nicholas Jackson, hmm. um, and he wanted he wanted something that kind of would um, would, uh, would would obviously we needed something that could be serialised as well as as become an, an omnibus edition for the for the Sunday broadcast, but he wanted something that would follow in some way the different the different people within hmm. the group and their different reactions. So I knew that I had a kind of a, uh, I knew that I had a, a structure there that was, um, it was, it was kind of like sort of, um, uh, it, it sort of appeared, whatever you did, it appeared because you had, you had four members of the band and then you had a, and, and then you had an episode to wrap it up in. And, and then it got, and then it got more and more complex, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 subsequent drafts were kind of. I, th- I think the first few drafts were um, were more about like sort of here's here's this person's story, here's Riley's story, here's Nico's story, whatever. And then gradually it started to it started to like sort of um, integrate a little bit more. Mm. But in the case of Nico's story, it just felt like well, it was a it was a self contained thing. And we we had to have that we had to have that like sort of uh, the space for it to breathe and just for it to be an episode on its own. Mm. Um, but yeah, there were loads of hoops to jump through with that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was it was a fifteen minute slot that was normally like sort of each evening uh, that was normally a um, an essay slot for Radio Three. Still is an essay slot for them. Um, normally a non fiction sort of space. Mm. Um, 
and we thought we'd have a bit of fun with it sounding potentially like it might be non-fiction in some <laughs> way. Um, but then sort of we had to have like sort of a little uh, pricey at the top of each episode and so that cut down the time a little bit wow. more. And and before you know it, sort of dealing with about, you know, 13 minutes ago to tell a, to tell a satisfying rounded story within one episode as well as it being a, a serialized thing. Mm. So yeah, it was interesting. There were lots of it kind of felt like maths a lot of the time, that, <laughs> that particular one. <laughs> well, and so presumably, because I haven't heard the um, individual episodes, the recap mm. was read out by Colin Salmon, again, introducing yeah. the audience the fact that this is found footage. Yeah, we kind of had a, we kind of had a, an opening, an opening minute of uh, a sort of like a very, a very extended title sequence. I'm a, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of title sequences <laughs> in, in TV and, mm. um, and other and other formats that kind of give you a that kind of give you most of what you need to know about a series in like sort of as condensed amount of time as possible. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's interesting is that there's something if you think back to the sixties, something like The Prisoner that mm. had a that had a title sequence that basically told you the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was I was trying to channel that when we were putting it together. Okay, nice. Um, I haven't managed to find your biography online, so I don't know what oh, part right. of the country you're from. But it, it interested me that a lot of your projects seem to be based in and around Bristol. And then yeah. you wrote The Morpeth Carol, which is exactly the other side of the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got I've got a kind of um, I've got a kind of a checkered uh, background. Okay. <laughs> in the, in the, I'm, I'm from I'm from a Yorkshire family. Ah. I was. Uh, but I, I spent my childhood in uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Oh, wow. Okay. And then and then moved back in my teenage years. I moved to, uh, the family moved back to the UK to uh, deepest, darkest rural Leicestershire, hmm. um, and after which I came to study in Bristol. So, yeah, and and my partner's uh, family who are, uh, who um, whose heritage is Sri Lankan, they're, they're based up in the northeast. So, huh. um yeah, so I've 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 had cause to sort of like take inspiration from all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, where the inspiration for the Morpeth Carol came from. Yeah, it was kind of, and I mean, Morpeth Morpeth is is the is the um, end point of of Morpeth Carol, but mm. it but it's set in a place that I've always imagined to be something perhaps a bit like Sheffield or Barnsley or somewhere like that. Yeah. Uh, my my mum. Um, was born in Barnsley so that's my connection to that particular part of the world mm. um and it's very it's very much kind of a, a yeah inspired by the the kind of the, the deadpan humor and the like sort of the bleak landscapes around where my family are from mm. uh, in Hebden Bridge yeah. you know these these places that are, that are lush a lot of the year round and then turn into these sort of like icy wintry dark places um, <laughs> when it when it comes to this sort of time of year that we're in right now indeed so was it looking out on a bleak uh midwinter night that made you think <laughs> what would it be like if santa claus crashed his sleigh around here and needed help to deliver his presents i think yeah i think it might have been a walk to work one day when i was actually i was working at the bbc for about a decade and <laughs> it might have been a walk to work one day that i started to put together the um the the like sort of the images for more of Carol, but it just it did actually sometimes an idea just comes to you from one arresting image that mm. you're never gonna you know you're never gonna get rid of, 
And in Morpeth Carroll's case, it was the image of a crashed sled um, with dead and dying reindeer, like mm. sort of scattered around uh, a, a sort of like a housing precinct in the north. And um, and, a, and a man sort of like in, in oily rags stalking around and finishing off the reindeer with a shotgun. Yeah. And, uh, and a little sort of like 10-year-old kid watching him from the shadows. And yeah, so that was that was what I had. And kind of the rest of the story, I, I wrote them all with Carol very, very quickly, probably about two days. Um, and it just spiraled from that. I mm. had no particular idea where it was going. It seemed pretty obvious that it was a Christmas story. And then I just followed, a, a, you know, a combination of um, thinking about what, the what your normal Christmas story cliches might be and thinking about at what point do I suddenly veer away from them? what would be really cool to do now instead of this mm. and so that's that's kind of how it works out with Morpeth Carol. Mm. Well and I think it's particularly effective if you listen to it at this time of year because we're so yeah. used to the traditional uh, version of uh, Father Christmas that was sort of co-created yeah. by Dickens and Coca-Cola that it's yeah. it's nice to see one that you know feels kind of really irreverent and and really presenting a very different image of what a character like that might be. I think there are, there are little bits of, bits and pieces of all kinds of mythologies that I've picked up over the years there's potentially little bits and pieces of the kind of the the, the clashes of um, uh, of Yoruba and Christianity that I, you know that I was occasionally exposed to out in Brazil, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And obviously, there's lots of the Norse gods in that as well. I, I find it difficult to imagine like sort of a, um, a Santa without some kind of like sort of Scandinavian mm. <laughs> mythos to it. And so I just I just rolled with a kind of. Uh, sliced up mess of all kinds of uh, origin stories for this figure mm. um, and just imagined him as a kind of a recidivist god who was doing this as a punishment who did his you know who delivered presents every year as a punishment for mm. something that he did like millennia ago mm. <laughs> And I really like the the very deadpan way that all the locals kind of deal with that. That the uh, the boy is pretty unfazed and wants to help the guy out. Yeah. And then yeah, when yeah. they go into a local corner shop, the lady behind the counter is like, "Oh God, another guy who's come to rob me!" Rather than thinking anything more fantastical than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because because Santa's carrying a shotgun around. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just yeah, I just again, this is this is just channeling the, the you know the, the kind of people that I might have. Um, spent some fantastic evenings with down the, down at the working men's club that my dad was helping to run at the time, all that kind of stuff. And it's just, yeah, you kind of you kind of just get in the zone with that. And, you, you, and you, again, I suppose we're back to music. Mm. In some ways, it's just like you, you you sort of like try to channel something and and imagine what uh, what uh, folks from that part of the world would do or say in those situations. Mm. Well, and returning to the theme of music, uh, your other radio drama, Phonophone, again, like, uh, yeah. the, like the Stromer Sessions, deals with the uncanny possibilities of music as a way of perhaps uh, having yeah. some kind of fantastical um, effect that people wouldn't normally associate with it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, that one. Phonophone is a, is a, is, was one of those ideas that I just thought was far too crazy to, to, <laughs> to live. Um, <laughs> and 
and a, a lot a lot of the writing process for it was was trying to keep it grounded in some way despite the fact that every single second of it just makes it crazier and crazier mm. um and the idea of the idea of two musicians like sort of battling it out to become the first people to reconstruct a victorian era instrument which you could <laughs> play with your mind um <laughs> that literally plugged in plugged on, into your skull and allowed you to play music the music that you imagined inside your head <laughs> that that that's pretty mad but then if you like sort of bring in like sort of um the fact that the musicians are from like sort of germany and japan and that one of them's kind of a a kraut rock or Kraftwerk style like sort of experimentalist and the other is i've no idea who the other one's based on really <laughs> probably on someone like um ryoji ikeda you know the sort of like the um electronic noise musician mm. who who works an awful lot with um like sort of digital data and stuff like that and and i just yeah in some ways it was kind of like um uh, it was it was a it was a double pronged attack on that <laughs> one. How how crazy can we take it? But also, can we keep the story feeling like sort of human and relatable? Mm. And it seemed like the most sensible way of doing that in some ways was bringing in a genre that everyone would know and everyone would know the tropes of. And and that in this case was a police procedural, mm. um, trying to find out what had happened to these two musicians as a result of this this battle. Mm. Um, at the same time, trying to uncover what it was they were chasing, and yeah, so it um, uh, that was an interesting one. That was one where I offered to do some music very, very early on for it as well, and in some ways quickly regretted it because I'd written myself, I'd written myself far too many um, kind of like uh, uh, impossible um, propositions <laughs> into it. <laughs> The very, the very idea that at at some point in that the musicians would play this instrument and it would be a music produced from the mind. Well, <laughs> yeah, almost anything you hear at that point is going to be slightly disappointing, um, <laughs> and uh, so I spent quite a while trying to not make it disappointing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's like I I've got a number of friends uh, who make comics, and indeed I I also present yeah. a comic book show, and one of them was doing an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft, where basically in the yeah. text it's about seeing unimaginable things and seeing colours that can't be seen in the normal spectrum. And you're like, well, how do I draw that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 it's it's amazing, isn't it? Literature's full of full of these ideas, and um, I'm sort of I'm struggling with one at the moment myself, which is. Well, one of the things that my 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 company does, one of the things that we we do is we kick around ideas for a very very long time, and we have a we have a list of like sort of thirty ideas that we keep going as kind of a development slate for ourselves at any one time, just so that um, weird and like sort of unwieldy ideas, or or even indeed like sort of very slight ideas, don't don't perish under the weight of all the other stuff that we're working on. Mm. Um, and one of them at the moment is is a is, I'm currently writing it as prose, and it's the story of um, five young women who get who form a band in order to play one single chord forever, <laughs> just 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 in just forever as 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 long as they possibly can. And every, every, you know, each time I'm working on it, we we get more excited by it, and we sort of think, oh, it would be an it would be an amazing feature film or something along mm. those lines. But then you keep returning 
all the time to the fact that it's called this 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 um project is called the chord and it's about uh, one chord that gets played um forever in order to like sort of um in order to in theory create an effect that might enable the people playing it to change the nature of reality <laughs> mm. and and um it's going to be if you actually were to hear that chord <sighs> chances are it's going to be it's not going to feel the same as if it's just left to your imagination <laughs> mm. indeed well and i guess i mean you know not suggest how you might solve that problem but that is something that you dealt with in phonophone so again yeah in the chords, yeah, yeah. the only way really you could show that the chord had changed reality is for people afterwards to come and say yeah yeah what caused this you know reality changing <laughs> effect <laughs> yeah that's right yeah yeah absolutely yeah. i mean one thing um i really enjoyed phonophone but one thing that i found frustrating about it is that it feels mm. like the pilot episode of a british x-files or something similar ah, and well, uh, you didn't do a second episode <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting you should say ah, that because okay. that's kind of that's kind of what what's developed from it so the oh, good. The 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 and and in fact, British X Files is kind of the the the, um, uh, the cue point for for all of that. And I think I was though those the characters in Phonophone are, are ones that have been um, have been like sort of uh, yeah visiting me and dropping in and out of various projects ever since I was around fifteen. Hmm. It all began with stuff that was really heavily influenced by um, Douglas Adams and Kurt Vonnegut and all that kind of thing. Mm. But but the idea of a of a, a, a department SO twenty one of the, of the Metropolitan Police that looks into hoax and misinformation, but it's actually like sort of a, 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 a sort of a, a slush pile for um, all the all the cases that look like they're going to be supernatural in some way, and therefore a pain in the ass to the police. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's been around for a bit, and I'm sort of like currently working up the um, the the uh, synopses and the scripts for a, for a TV version of that. Oh, yeah, intriguing. Hmm. Speaking of British TV, uh, another series that you've been involved with is doing new audio stories for Doctor Who. Um, yeah. You've done a second Doctor Who story, The Wreck of the World, and an eighth Doctor story, uh, Jonah. Um, yeah. You a long-time Whovian? Yeah, and uh, the funny thing about growing up in, in Rio de Janeiro is that mm. um, I I had no access to the TV show itself until I was about 10. So I, I got back to the UK just in time to um, miss uh, The Twin Dilemma, huh. Alan Baker's first story, just in time to miss that. Well, that's um, not a bad one to miss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have the best reputation, that one, does it? No. Uh, but um, I, so I, I kind of, I kind of uh, got into Doctor Who through some kind of, uh, half remembered very early memories of seeing little bits and pieces of it on a black and white TV mm. just before we left for Brazil. Um, but then whilst we were out there, I, I sort of like properly got into it through the target paperbacks, the novelizations. Mm. And so my, my first, my, my doctor was kind of um, the first four doctors all mm. in one great big lump. I'd, I'd read, 
I'd sort of like read second Doctor stories next to next to fourth Doctor stories, um, and that's and that's how I got into it, and then started to subscribe to um, Doctor Who magazine, and <laughs> like when I was about eight, <laughs> just in order to, you know, fill myself in with what I was missing, um, and yeah, so so I, I've I've always adored it. But it's it's been kind of in a it's been a, in a strange filtered way. <laughs> hmm. Um, I mean, I always think that writing new episodes of Doctor Who, whether they're episodes that are set in between existing episodes, yeah. like the ones that you've written, or indeed going forward with the TV series, is how on yeah. earth do you tell a new Doctor Who story when you know on TV it's been running yeah. for fifty years, and then on audio, Big Finish bring out at least like eight episodes a month or something so how yeah. on earth do you find a new angle to, to squeeze into that enormous canon i mean it's kind of i guess that's you have a, you have a choice to make quite early on when you're doing these things as to whether you ask yourself that or whether you just go with the flow because i think you could drive yourself crazy if you mm. were trying to reinvent the wheel i mean my own my own attitude towards writing um the uh it's not so much the case with the with the Eighth Doctor because it's kind of the, the, the vast majority of the Eighth Doctor material is the big finish anyway, mm, in yeah. lots of ways. But um, certainly for writing for the Second Doctor, my attitude was, well, I want to do something that feels like it could be part of that era. So there <laughs> are going to be some things that feel very, very familiar. Mm. There are going to be some things that feel like they could also have been dreamt up by like sort of the team working in 1968 mm. but you also want to give it twists to make it stand out a little bit and and to make it connect with modern audiences um so yeah it's i've, I've never I've, i haven't thought too much um about um how, how to make it feel like something completely fresh if i'm honest because i have too much fun writing stuff that feels like it's part of that universe <laughs> <laughs> so i kind of i kind of allow myself a, a nice balance i hope of mm. um of writing things that like feel familiar and satisfying in that way but also um i mean with a case in point with um, the wreck of the world the second doctor story i think i thought i'm, I'm i want to write a really really great um, based under siege, under siege mm. story because that's that's a that's a format from that era of of them being within a place that's being attacked either from inside or out. Um, and but I'll, but what I'll do is I'll bring in like sort of a a crew that feels like it might come out of a bit more out of Douglas Adams or something mm. like that, um, or a bit more out of the Russell T Davis era, of, yeah, you know, of Doctor Who, something like that. Well, I, so, I think, yeah, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I don't think there's anything wrong thinking of the earlier Doctors through the lens yeah, of yeah. Douglas Adams, because actually, yeah. you know, I think you could say that some of uh, Douglas Adams's writing was influenced by Doctor Who in the 60s. I mean, there's a uh, William Hartnell uh, story in the middle of a long run of Dalek episodes yeah. where the TARDIS... Lord, uh, lands at Lord's Cricket Ground, and you think that's classic yes. Douglas Adams, and this was like yeah, absolutely ten yeah. years earlier, you know. And and the beautiful thing about Doctor Who is it's always I I felt it's always been a, a, a you know, like sort of a a magpie kind of show that's mm. collected collected shiny things from all over the place, and so it's only only really a matter in some ways of thinking how would Doctor Who do X, or mm. you know, I'm, I've been I've been writing one for an upcoming big finish range where it was it was kind of the proposition was 
can I find something else that will can I find something that will fit within that era? Mm. What what hasn't been done yet that would fit? You know, what hadn't been done that would fit within that era? Mm. And how can I how can I make it feel more like Doctor Who? Yeah. Mm. Assuming that you did write the second Doctor one first, uh, was it mm. easier coming in with that because? As a fan of the Target books, the uh, early adventures that Big Finish do have a narrator as well, which is a little bit closer to the novels than. To yeah, TV. I mean, I mean, if I'm honest, it's it's probably a good, it's probably a good um, uh, ten years or so since I've actually read a Target novel. Right, <laughs> <laughs> but they're still up on my shelf. But it's probably a while since I have, and um, I think, I think so, so. If if I was channeling any of that, it was it was from deep within like sort of my deep within my um, childhood memory. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt it, it felt good to do it that way. I mean, you always it's kind of the the the, the narrator is interesting. You you want to you want to really really use that. Mm. It's an unusual device even within big finish like sort of um, dramas. Mm. Um, and you want to use it really, really well. So I thought I'd I'd make it a particularly florid target novelisation <laughs> if it was one. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that uh, the wreck of the world was your homage to um, the base under siege story. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then Jonah is a submarine under siege. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and yes. Any 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 similarity with Das Boot is purely coincidental on that one. Yeah. I mean, I know that um, Paul McGann has said on various occasions that he's uh, very interested in in world war dramas. So was yeah. that one of the reasons why you chose a sort of submarine style uh, environment because it very much evokes those kind of Second World War dramas. Uh, yeah, my, my, my brief was to kind of go for uh, war films of okay. some kind, to think to think about how to think about how like sort of war films might interpolate with the Doctor Who world and and um and so after 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 going back and forth a little bit there was there was we settled on we settled on a submarine, which of course is a brilliant thing for me as a as a as a like sort of a sound designer and as a musician it's kind mm. of um it, it wasn't it wasn't difficult at all to like kind of uh to find fun in mm. how how to use how to use that sonic world <laughs> um, my my biggest my biggest problem in some ways was and I, and I and i think this is probably a problem for an awful lot of doctor who stuff is is where to it's where to pull it in and make it more like sort of relatable and more human um so it was very important to like kind of introduce a situation where um these submarines couldn't just shoot to each other with underwater lasers or whatever <laughs> so the, so the first thing i had to do was create a bit of you know marvelous sci-fi flimflam that basically said these are waters where energy weapons won't work and then suddenly everyone's on everyone's on an even footing and you get a a classic world war 2 situation indeed <laughs> And it also felt that um, it gave Paul McGann an opportunity to do something slightly different with his Doctor, that it felt that he really actually relished the opportunity of playing the captain of a submarine. I hope so. I hope <laughs> so. I mean, I, I really I really enjoyed writing and I really enjoyed him like sort of being this put-upon like sort of figure. Um, this sort of, you know, because of course the... the sort of like submarine captains very often seem to be that one of one of the cliches one of the tropes seems to be that they're that they're kind of like strong silent but very dour <laughs> and so, so it was interesting to see how like sort of uh paul's very effusive doctor would like sort of respond to that situation mm. um 
yeah, but but it was it, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> and assuming that she hasn't recorded any since, it also meant you had the unfortunate privilege of recording the last writing the last story for Big Finish that Jacqueline Pierce appeared in. Yeah, which is yeah, that that did strike me, and um, yeah, and Godspeed. Because, I mm. mean, yeah, it was um, it that was a marvelous run of stories that she was in. Yeah. yeah. And presumably, you know, like many other sci-fi fans, it was a pleasure to hear her reading out your words. Absolutely, yeah, and that's, that's it's always it's always a wonderful thing to hear. Um, I mean, Big Finish always assemble a fantastic mm. range of people, and uh, yeah, it was grand. Mm. Other than the fact that you want to do something different for a certain era, are you allowed to reveal anything else about your next big finish story? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure. I completely. Yeah, I think. Okay. I think they like to. You know. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Nick and David and his crew like like to be like to be um, in in control of that, in control of the release of information in a properly dramatic way. Okay. So I'll I'll leave that to one side, but I'll t- I can tell you that it's got an absolutely brilliant title um, (laughs) which I'm really uh, it's one of those ones where I'm really surprised that it hasn't been used somewhere in the Doctor Who canon before and you know it's one of the first things that you have to do working on Big Finish is Mm. like sort of look up and see whether the titles appeared somewhere in any of the range of you know graphic novels or novels or like sort of Big Finish or, or dramas whatever you have to look that up and you have to look up the name of your principal monster or species or whatever and make sure that that hasn't appeared somewhere as well. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Well, um, I look forward to that. And uh, any other BBC radio projects in the near future? Yeah, there's there's one um, that's going to be, uh, I think it might even be the first um, officially commissioned drama for uh, the BBC Sounds app. Ah, um, that's going to that's, that's going to be um, it's called Forest 404 and it's going to be out um, I think like sort of very, very early next year mm. um, which is uh, yeah uh, it's a sort of um, a sci-fi eco thriller that's the mm. best way of describing it okay <laughs> <laughs> for anyone who's been str- uh, frustrated by a 404 message on a website yes uh, yeah I mean it takes its starting point is it's set in a it's set in a future a future earth where nothing remains of the rainforests mm. at all um and someone whose job it is to like sort of sift through data from um the long forgotten world that our world has become mm. uh, they're sifting through data and they discover the recording of a rainforest and are completely beguiled and entranced by it and uh, they decide they have to find out what it is and where it came from. For some oh, yeah. reason, uh, people want to stop them doing that. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, which kind of ties back to, I just found earlier on your website, um, on your writer's page, one of the very mm. first pieces that you wrote for radio, which I wasn't able to track down um, in its oh, audio yeah. form, but I, I read the, the transcript, uh, was Birdsong Man, which is all about yeah. a character who likes to record natural sounds, but then is yes, press-ganged right. into some kind of military regime who want to see if they can monopolise on Birdsong, and he thinks, yeah. well, how can I find a way around this? Yeah, 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 that's right. Um and uh, and uh, a military regime that uh, it's it's revealed they're 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 effectively asking him to tell them that the birds sing clearer and brighter <laughs> in under the under their under Regime. their 
governance, mm. um, which actually came from a line by John Prescott, believe it or not. <laughs> who, I mean, I think I th- I'm, I'm pretty sure he was joking, but there was one event where he announced that the birds sing clearer and brighter in Blair's Britain. Oh, and I just thought, okay, yeah, I can use that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, that was that was an interesting one, and it kind of it, yeah, it tied together a whole a whole bunch of. Uh, interests of mine at the time yeah mm, cool great well i look forward to both forest 404 and your next doctor who project and it's been uh, a great pleasure to talk to you thank you yeah. thanks mate the morpeth carol phone a phone and the stroma sessions were broadcast on radio 3 and radio 4 in 2015 and 2016 so keep an eye on the bbc radio website and sounds app of these three excellent plays if you're a university student or lecturer you should be able to use the Box of Broadcasts service. And if so, then these three plays by Timothy X. Atac are available to download as part of Bob. For more info about Tim's various projects, please go to Tim Atac, that's T-I-M-A-T-A-C-K dot co dot U-K. For info about his multimedia work with the production company Sleep Dogs, please go to sleepdogs.org. And to buy his two Doctor Who audio plays on CD or MP3 download, please go to bigfinish.com. And to give you a flavour of his most recent script for Big Finish, the submarine drama Jonah, in which the Eighth Doctor, played by Paul McGann, is cast as the captain of a submarine, here's an extract from the opening of that story. I have no idea what I'm hearing, Captain. You better get over here. Take these. What is it? Another dreadnought? Captain! Uh, not exactly. Not a surface vessel at any rate. So for future reference, Enton Murty, the sound you're hearing is a Dalek deep-sea battle sub, Class 1. At a guess, I'd say, uh, 35 cannon and approaching fast. And that would be the Daleks firing heat-seeker torpedoes directly at us. Dive, dive! Power! 20! Stand down! 20! Dive! Enton Murty, time to impact! Full power! Deploy countermeasures! Countermeasures intended in the previous 22 attacks, Captain! That's a shame, Bliss! Yes? Sorry about all this, I never asked. Can you swim? Look, if we're about to totally explode, I'm not sure swimming's gonna help. Crew of the Bloodhound, this is Captain Jonah. This is Captain Jonah. All hands prepare for impact. I repeat, all hands prepare for impact! In the second half of today's show, in a Q&A recorded at a conference about zombie fiction at the University of Brighton, Ewan Kirkland is talking to novelist Naomi Alderman about the immersive fitness app Zombies Run, available for mobile phones. In this app, which is aural only, as you walk or run around a location, you get extracts of a radio drama putting you on missions to help other survivors recover from attacks from the undead, capturing valuable supplies to take back to your base. To give you a flavour of the game, here's the opening segment of Zombies Run, and throughout Ewan's interview with Naomi, you'll hear extracts from the game, 
in the way that they would pop into your headphones if you're walking or running about a location. Able Township's just on the horizon. See it now? Not much more than a few fences to keep the zombies out. I don't know how they live like that. Level with me. You and me both know we haven't got half of the usual supplies. We've lied to the township. What the? Someone's shooting. That's not from the township. Who the hell has a rocket launcher in this? We're hit. I've lost the tail rotor. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Jolly Alpha 59 are going down. Three miles east of Able Township. Two souls on board. This is Able Township calling. Supply copter, can you hear us? You're coming down fast. Can any of you hear us? This is Able Township calling. Over. If there's anyone alive, if you've got your parachute open, this is Sam Yao from Able Township. You've come down in a horde of zombies. They've heard the noise. They're coming. There are 30... No, 40. Your only safe path is towards the tower. If there's anyone alive there, just run. Run! This is Zombies Run. We won't ask you to change direction, look at your phone, or stop moving. As you run, you'll hear scenes from the story. You'll also collect supplies automatically. Collected a bottle of water. You can use your supplies to build up your base once you're home. Once you've completed a mission, you'll automatically tune into Able Township's very own radio station until you're ready to stop running. The intention of this event was to kind of bring together academics and practitioners and exchanging ideas. And um, in, in my experience, which is quite short of kind of going to um, co conventions as opposed to conferences, it is really interesting actually that there's a lot of a huge amounts of common ground. But you know, usually the people who are the, you know, fan discussions and practitioner discussions are not, it, it's all dissimilar from academic discussions. Usually the, the language is different, less, less citation of Foucault in fan <laughs> fan debates. Although sometimes that, does, that, that is something which happens. And, and um, I'm very lucky to have managed to get people who have worked uh, not only on zombies in popular culture, but actually on zombies and games. So I've produced games which feature zombies. So what I'd like to do first is to um, get them to introduce themselves, ask a few questions, and then open up the, the, the floor, not only to discussing what these interesting guys are going to be talking about, but also maybe some issues which have been brought up throughout the, uh, the day, because I think you know, the whole kind of idea of the zombie as a transmedia figure is something which is, uh, I think we've all been kind of like engaging with um, in, in our own way. So... Hello, I'm Naomi. How I know Ewan on the subject of, of academic conferences and practitioner conferences is we met at a Buffy the Vampire Slayer conference <laughs> ten years ago, which I went to, not being an academic at that point, but for impelled, as, as it says in the Bible, impelled by the power of the divine word. <laughs> I heard that there was such a thing as a Buffy the Vampire Slayer academic conference, and even though I had no money, I had to be there. So, um, hello, I am Naomi Alderman, I write novels and I write journalism, I have a column about games in The Observer and I do some radio broadcasting and I am the co-creator and lead writer of Zombies Run. 
Uh, Zombies Run, let, let, let me do the spiel and then you will all understand it. Zombies Run is a fitness game which you play by going for a run or for a walk in the real world. That is, you actually have to get off your bum and go and do some exercise. It's on your smartphone, you put on your headphones, and we simulate the zombie apocalypse in your headphones in order to encourage you to go further, go faster, or just enjoy it more. So every time you go out for a run, it's a mission. You are runner five, you come from this little township, able township, a last shivering remnant of humanity after the zombie apocalypse. And as you go out running, you have to get, get supplies. So as you go, it goes, bing, you've got some batteries. Bing, you picked up some water. Bing, run, run, run. There is an overarching story. So every time when you go out as a mission and it's something like, run a five, run a five, there's a child stuck in no man's land. Run and get them before the zombies get them. Run, run, run. Picked up a power cable. All headphones, obviously, no looking at the screen. Don't want you running into a lamppost or traffic. Um, <laughs> it's, it's audio drama, scripted by me. We've got a full cast of actors. We've got, God, we've got about a cast, like, in terms of, like, people that we've used, we've got about 40 people in it now. Each, we, we release a new season every spring, so we're coming up to release of season four this year. Um, we've sold about one and a half million copies of it. About 70% have been sold in the US, which makes us a great British export success. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we sell it for about, it goes for around three fifty, four quid a pop, so that's been a very nice few years for us. And uh, actually there's a really interesting thing to, talk, to come onto at some point, the difference between the British zombie narrative and the American zombie narrative, where the American zombie narratives to me seem to be very right-wing fantasies involving being able to finally use your guns. You know, you've got the guns, you've stockpiled the guns, now you can use the guns. And we are much more in the British zombie tradition where we're quite a left-wing game and, you know, everybody's trying to work together to survive what's essentially a sort of terrible apocalyptic event. You may have done this all already about left-wing and right-wing video games and, and, and zombie narratives. So that zombie's run. Um, I, yeah, I, I write it, but I now work with a team of four or five other writers who work with me. Every time we, we release seasons that are somewhere between 40 and 60 episodes a season, so that should keep you going, basically, for your couple of runs a week over the whole spring, summer, autumn. Um, and, um, yeah, we've, we've got about 200 missions in there so far, so we're about as long as Game of Thrones. <laughs> Picked up a USB key. Do you know, I mean, I, you know, I live in London, not in Brighton, and I realise that people in Brighton are nice. But when you're, when you're in London, you're just on the tube. And there's just these massive crowds of people. I think, I think you know, the reason that the Shaun of the Dead poster, that first one, is him on the tube. Like, because that's how you feel when you're on the tube. Like, literally, if somebody gave you a gun and was just like, just go for it, man, there's no consequences, you would go, actually, sure, seriously. I think, it, I think it's very kind of, like, weird for our... I don't know, instincts to be around that many mm. complete strangers all the time. I think it's doing quite funny things to us. I think one of the, uh, we were talking earlier about kind of like why zombies, why now? I mean, one of the anxieties which you have um, is about overpopulation. Mm. There are just too many damn people on the planet, and this would be a good way of stripping away yes. a lot of, it's a lot of excess baggage. And has anyone seen Utopia, which yeah. is a really ironically named mm. TV show? But that's what that is about. It's sort of like if we had the opportunity to, to actually kind of like. Depopulate the planet, not in a violent way, but would that actually be an ethical thing to, to go about doing? Yeah, I've got a car always full of petrol, and I've got a, I have a friend with, whose mum lives in Suffolk with a, a, 
uh, in quite a, a secluded area and she's got a well. Okay. <laughs> That's yeah. what you want. Yeah. We've, got, we've got a plan together, well, me for... and my phone, because she hasn't got a way to get out of London, so I'm like, come to me. And it's about really what you believe about humanity. Like, do you believe that fundamentally we would all just each other up? Or do you believe that somehow we would manage to work together? Picked up a bottle of pain meds. Why why do you think it is that the zombie works well in, 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 in games in general? And how does the zombie function in your particular game as a, as a kind of mechanic? So, I mean, it is really interesting. I've, um, I've obviously written quite a lot of zombie story now. Um, and to start off with, uh, you can do the thing where you're just like, go to try and do a thing and then a zombie attacks you. Um, and I noticed this in like the Walking Dead game, the first season, you know, you can get quite a lot of mileage out of zombie attacks you or like, you know, maybe there are cannibals. Um, and what I have found after a good 200 zombie stories is that after a while, I have to treat them like the weather. Basically, they're a sort of natural threat. They, are, they make the landscape much more terrifying to be in. But the thing is, you can't talk to a zombie. Uh, or you can, but they probably won't say anything useful back. Um, so uh, in that way, they're unlike vampires, where you, know, you can have a story where vampires are trying to do something and you're going to foil what they're trying to do. And, you know, um, or you're going to try and get the vampires to do something for you, but you can't do that with a zombie. So, yeah, I sort of, I, you know, for a while I thought, is this, like, diminishing the quality of the zombie in the narrative? And actually, looking at Walking Dead game season two, I feel like they, they do a bit too much of the boom, 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 a zombie, boom, 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 a zombie. And, like, you know, you get to see it coming. Um, I think, interesting for me, in the game that I write, Runner 5 is a hollow character, as in Runner 5 is you. We never say anything about what Runner 5 looks like. I very carefully never gender Runner 5. People talk to you. You are Runner 5. Uh, Whoever you are, wherever you came from, that's you put yourself into my narrative. And so there's something quite interesting about the fact that zombies are similarly hollow. You know, they, they, they don't have a personality in there. They've got a few just quite obvious instincts. They're predators, actually. They, they, you know, they are the apex predator um, in, a, in a societies where we haven't been used to having an apex predator other than us. Picked up two first aid kits and two bottles of water. So I think there is something interesting about that they have a game mechanic to them, right? In the way that, you know, in a game you want something, you want, you want, you want to be having to combat something where you can see what the rules of the operation are and so you can try and calculate around it so you know like a game mechanic like chess where you're like all right well his bishop is there and that means it can't move this way it's got to move that way or that way so similarly a zombie has that all right i don't have to do a massive theory of mind in order to work out what this zombie Mm -hmm. is and wants so it is true there are a lot of zombie games out there um you know that they're a real kind of force in the video games market now and i think Part of it is that. And also all these things we've been talking about, you know, zombie, I'm sure somebody's probably said this already today, zombies tend to become more popular during economic downturns, and vampires during economic upticks. Vampires are the aristocracy. You know, they are counts, they live in castles, they wear velvet all the time. Um, And zombies are the proletariat, you know, terrifying, faceless mass. Um, So from that point of view, I think... There's a kind of a playing out of something. I mean, I think there's playing out also. There's playing out of 
predator threats, where I think we've probably got instincts of that. I think there's also playing out, obviously, of plague threats, mm-hmm. where we have some quite strong instincts about what to do in the face of a plague. And we kind of... We see so many people living in such close proximity. I think we all know we're extremely vulnerable to plague. And, um, you know, God knows that's happened several times during civilization that just, you know, vast swathes of humanity are wiped out. And then the survivors do much better because, you know... So I think what we do with Zombies Run, actually, is we're using those instincts that you already have to encourage you to move because... You ha- we don't use it. We never use it. But if you hear something growling right behind you, you run. Your body knows how to do that. Um, so I think from our point of view, that's you know, a useful yeah. thing about them. Well, I would say that, that to me, there is a sort of weird thing where we're increasingly meeting or encountering people who are responding to us using what is essentially a game flow diagram script. So, you know, you phone up those call centres. Mm. That is a zombie. That yeah. is like you've got somebody who's behaving in that way. Exactly. It's written in that and way. And you want to kill them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and it, and it is. It's kind of... It's really uncanny valley sometimes, talking to those people and going, oh, they're like a person. Can I get them to go off script? And sometimes you just can't, you know? And then you're like, <gasps> pod people type mm. feeling. And that actually... I mean, God knows I'm obsessed with this, like, you know, the fact is, like, in the past, I think it was five or six years ago, we went, the world flipped to being now more than 50% of people living in urban environments. So I think it's a very interesting thing that's happening right now. Um, and I'm a bit obsessed with it. But I think living in those environments involves complex negotiations, um, which cannot be done by recognising the humanity of every person that you encounter. It must be done by scripts and by... Um, uh, uh, forms of behaviour that you learn to kind of do in a certain way, um, and because I think interactions would be too complex. Otherwise. Yeah, because if you try to acknowledge, if we even try to acknowledge, you know, all the people we're going to see walking down the street today as full human beings, just be stuck there all day. <laughs> um, and and picked up a pack of batteries. There is some. I mean, my whole theory about this is that, like, partly that's what video games are doing at kind of, you know, helping us to model those encounters so these kind of constant things you get in video games like the same character just appears again and again or you know there's like a, a, a sort of street scene and the people will say the same thing over and over to kind of go don't worry it wouldn't wouldn't like your adam curtis go well this is about individualism like this is about we all think that we are the lone individual and everyone else is the faceless horde and like you've got to differentiate yourself from the mass by preferably buying a lot of consumer products that yeah. indicate how different you are. <laughs> okay, sure. Can we open up the, the floor now? Um, yes. <laughs> can I just make a comment about uh, how inhuman people are when they are, for example, on trains? That um, My flatmate used to work for the physics environment lab at King's and they had a fake train so that bus and train companies could test how people get on and off buses and trains. And the problem was with all these simulations is that everyone was always too nice. Yeah. You know, you would get an instruction saying, right, we need to get all 30 of you on the train in the next 10 seconds. And we'll go, no, I'll do, I'll do. Yeah. And people are just so rude in real life, it's very hard mm. to simulate that. Yeah. It's almost like I, I do think... Yeah, no, I think, I think there is something about zombies which is, like, to me anyway, is a fantasy of, like, having to work together. 
Mm. And just like having a reason to put all those differences aside and just, you know, the last survivors work together somehow. Which is, again, this is the difference, I think, between the American and the British. The British does tend to be a lot more working together and the American tends to be a lot of we hate each other and infighting and, you know... I was actually talking to somebody, I was doing an interview about this the other day, and um, have any of you ever seen The Good Wife? Do you know The Good Wife? It's a very, very good show. And the premise is it's about a woman whose husband was a politician and has been found having slept with prostitutes, and he's been sent to prison because he also was corrupt. And, but essentially, a lesser show would start with that explosive moment of like discovering, but, it's a, but it starts after the apocalypse has happened. And then you go, all right, then how do we rebuild? And, and that's what I've taken as my, you know, I just thought about it afterwards, and I thought, well, that's my model. Actually, um, I thought, as you were talking about over, being overwhelmed, and I thought, the thing is, there's almost something relaxing about something that starts after the apocalypse has happened because it's just done. The, the other shoe has dropped. Mm. Yeah, it's unlike now we come in six months later and we go, right, well, your husband's in prison and you've got to go out to work, so what are you going to do? And you can, really can get a lot of mileage out of the slow rebuilding. And I mean, that's why you couldn't, I don't think you could do a fitness game that was constantly in that moment of everything's gone to mm. Essentially what we're doing is going, no, it's a fitness game because it's about slow rebuilding even if you feel like your body is the zombie apocalypse you know we come in and go here's a nice little metaphor for slow difficult painful and yet you know like 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 marginal growth constantly so yeah i think that's i think that arc is a really like nice arc an interesting arc and like what the forces are that are trying to kind of tear that down uh listen i'm gonna call you runner five um just because I don't know your name, and we just lost a runner. In that same hospital you're running through now. Uh, she was so fast, really funny and clever. You could be our new runner five. <laughs> if you make it back alive. Yeah, okay. Your pace is good, but um, maybe head through the ground floor of the hospital. There's a little swarm gathering in the parking lot I don't like the look of, and um, you could even pick up anything interesting you pass. We think there might be some... Oh, well, we sent the old runner five there looking for some file the doc's interested in, so, uh, you know, if you find anything official-looking lying around, just bring it home. Is that the... Oh, I'm trying to remember whose quote this is. I think it might, it might be... Verna Vinci? I don't know. Anyway, a really, a really good quote about utopias, that uh, utopia is the process of making utopia. Like, that's, that, and that's what, that, that's what those narratives are, is just, like, try and make a better world. But that is the process of making a better world, is the better world. I was just thinking about the attractiveness of killing zombies. There's some kind of, you know, so many video games, so many action movies are all about making mass murder attractive and it's okay within the storyline because someone has to save someone or whatever but if they're zombies then it doesn't matter if you shoot people in the head because mm-hmm. they haven't got personalities and it somehow legitimizes you know the act of mass murder yeah i mean it is true that sadly we no longer believe that there's any race or group of people that it's all right to just shoot in the head <laughs> <laughs> which makes it hard to make certain kinds of stories that are actually part of 
the sort of human heritage of stories is, you know, yeah, you can kill the Greeks, you can kill the Trojans, you can kill the, you know, you can kill the Canaanites, you can kill the Midianites, you can kill the Hittites, they're not real. And, like, we've kind of reached this sort of post-Holocaust moment of going, well, maybe everyone's real. Picked up CDC box. I actually took a line out of a writer's script recently where um, one, of my, one of my writers was, had, had some people talking about, you know, there had been tension between two different groups of humans who'd survived the zombie apocalypse, and they were talking about then, like, getting together to kill a zombie, and somebody said, oh, it's not a person anymore, it's all right, you know. And, and then that one of the people in that group said, that, oh, that's what you used to say about us. And I, I, yeah, I really know why this writer put it in, I really understand it, but I, you can't have it. It, it just it will just destroy the possibility of being able to play that game once you start to go you know maybe they're still people in some way it's like vital that we have something you can kill that's not a per- definitely not a person I go to extraordinary lengths to kind of emphasise to the players that we've done brain scans on them and they don't have any brain activity anymore you know and just because although that said in um, uh, in the flesh some of the rehabilitated zombies actually want to give up their humanity and become zombies again because mm. there is that freedom in being mindless and being able to eat people and have no social responsibility. <laughs> it's so good the BBC have cancelled it. I think, do you know, you know about the Peter Singer expanding circle of us? So Peter Singer, who's a moral philosopher, basically talks about how, you know, in the sort of in the Roman Empire, like, there were only a very few people who were considered actual people. Like, there's the emperor and, like, the consul. But, and, and, then, and then you slowly go, all right, well, you go, oh, maybe, maybe, there's, maybe we should have manhood suffrage because maybe all white men are people. <gasps> and, like, and, like but, or before that, you go, you know, maybe all rich white men are people. Maybe all white men are people. Maybe black people are people. Maybe women are people. Maybe, like, disabled people are people. And gay people. Picked up three first aid kits. Animals. Well, this is where Peter Singer goes. Peter Singer is, is a philosopher who says we should be giving human rights to great apes. And uh, you may or may not agree with that, but anyway, that's his sort of thing. This is your thing about children, actually. Maybe children are also people and should also have as many rights as we can possibly give them rather than, you know, just going, well, no, you're a possession of your parent. So it used to be that we could tell these stories and, like, ignore or, you know, use as story objects other some of these non-real people and it's quite useful to have story objects but you're really running out of things you can use as story objects and, and still consider yourself a moral human being so hence no i insist on it we took that line out we're not fuzzing that <laughs> zombies are not people people fuzz all of them i mean if you think of um starship troopers deliberately trying to say oh you think these bugs are alien <laughs> And, and obviously there's a lot of stuff about AIs and are robots real? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that narrative is a narrative about going, oh, maybe black people are also real people. And, and that sort of, you know, that unfolding morality of humanity. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think there's one left that nobody's fuzzed. I mean, obviously, um, in the flesh, fuzzy zombies. Hey, there you are. I've got you on camera now. Great to see you. Even though you're kind of blurry. Uh, what's that you're carrying? Uh, look at this, Doc. Runner 5 picked up something in the hospital. Is that the Centers for Disease Control file? What's that? Runner 5, I don't say this lightly. That box could be worth your life to protect. Don't drop it. What is it? Oh, it might be nothing, it might be everything. So, a pretty narrow window of definition. What's that shadow over there? 
Oh, oh, no. This was what... When we sent her out, this was what happened. They're following you, Runner 5. The swarm from the car park, they're following you now. Run! The Aral Immersive Interactive Fitness app, Zombies Run, is available from app stores for mobile phones and is well worth a play and a listen. Another game by Naomi Alderman, The Walk, is also available from the company Six to Start, who are involved in a number of fitness games for various platforms. And for more information about all their work, please go to sixsixtostart.com. And for more information about Naomi Alderman's work, please go to naomialderman.com. That's N-A-O-M-I-A-L-D-E-R-M-A-N.com. A compilation of one of the Zombies Run storylines and missions is also available to listen to as a standalone radio play on MP3 CD and download, and is available from Amazon under the title The Way of All Flesh. Info about Ewan Kirkland's research can be found on the University of Brighton's website, and I'd like to take this opportunity to apologise to Ewan for monopolising a number of questions asked during the Q&A with Naomi. Audio Dramatics was introduced, recorded and edited by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. Previous episodes of Audio Dramatics featuring interviews with the likes of Colin Baker, Paul Mars, Katie Manning, Dirk Maggs, Lisa Bowerman, and many more can be found on our website www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Audio Dramatics alternates with the Electric Sheep Film Show in the 5.30 slot on the third Wednesday of the month on Resonance FM, and we'll be back in February. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.